Business has always been about turning a profit, making money. But can it stand for something more? Something beyond dollars and cents? We think so. We think that today, business has a higher calling, a purpose to be fair and just, to do right by their workers, customers, communities, and the environment. And it turns out companies successful doing that also do better for their bottom line. When you see the Just Capital seal, it means this company is a force for good. Visit JustCapital.com to learn more. Hi there and good evening. I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Some of you guys know me as your liberty-loving Latino amigo, Richie B. He used to be Mr. Call Screener. And uh, I'm here with you guys all night long for the next three hours. We are live. It's national and it's going to be a great time. Listen to this. There's a headline uh, in uh, Newsmax. Newsmax Newsmax.com is reporting that McCarthy has just cut a deal about maybe an, an hour ago, maybe a little more than an hour ago to secure about another 10 votes to get him closer to the 218 votes that he needs to become speaker. Uh, This is by Eric Mack. And uh, I'm sorry, not two hours ago. This is 20 minutes ago. Excuse me. Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, has cut a major deal with key holdout votes, but the House still voted 216 to 214 to adjourn until Thursday afternoon. They, the deal was hammered out by the Club for Growth, and 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 uh, they're moving votes over to McCarthy. So the, the, here are the keys to the agreement. It says uh, Congressional Leadership Fund will stay out of open primaries, and both the Leadership Pack, the Congressional uh, Leadership Pack, and the Club for Growth will also um, uh, adhere to this rule. It goes on to say this agreement on super PACs fulfills a major concern that we've had and they've pressed for it. That's according to uh, David McIntosh in a statement that he released a little while ago. So that's what we got on that so far. Now, let me see how this is going to work out. I'm reading this to you live here. The next vote is expected to move in McCarthy's favor. It'll be much closer to looking at probably getting him 212 or something in that area. It's expected that this deal will help move perhaps as many as 10 votes in favor of McCarthy. And this will happen Thursday at noon. The Club for Growth support for McCarthy will likely impact six of the holdout votes, uh, including Representative Dan Bishop, North Carolina, Representative Mary Miller from Illinois, Representative Chip Roy from Texas, Representative Anna Paulina Luna, you've heard her on this program, from Florida, Representative-elect Andy Ogles from Tennessee, and Representative-elect Josh Breeshen from Oklahoma as well. McCarthy has effectively led House Republicans from the minority to the the majority, and we want to see him continue to lead the party so that we can pick up seats for the third cycle in a row. And that's uh, Congressional Leadership Fund President President Dan uh, Constant, excuse me, in a statement that they released. So I'll post this on social media in a little bit during the break so that you could take a look at it. But that's where they are. So they've adjourned for tonight. McCarthy has uh, faced opposition, getting out of 201 or 202 votes, six consecutive elections in a row, and still not uh, not not closing the deal. And of course, he's not going to hold the deal because 
these holdouts, and some some are saying uh, they are holding the process hostage uh, or um, blackmailing the Republican Party, are out for what they want to get. So I don't know if, you know, the pound of flesh they're looking for even exists. Uh, I, I think there was an interview on Fox last night. Nobody really articulated anything that I could um, decipher that this is very clear. These seem to be very broad strokes requests saying, oh, we want to get to action on this. We want this and we want that. Um, I don't know. It's more like, hey, you had a chance to do it. You didn't do it. So now we're not going to vote for you. That part is uh, understandable. Uh, But it seems as if those that are holding out are saying, if you do this and if you do this, then we'll vote for you. But if you don't do this and don't do this, then we won't vote for you. So but at the same time, they're saying, well, we don't really trust you. So will you trust me if I agree to these things or do you not uh, trust me even if I agree to those things? Right. So I think those are the questions that remain on the table, in in my opinion, whereas uh, I think, you know, it's so much easier to get from 202 to 218 or quite frankly, um, you know, with Hakeem Jeffries getting 212 uh, votes on the other side, McCarthy really only needs, according to the rules that they have right now, he only needs 213 to, to become speaker, uh, to do it based on uh, on that plurality. So I, I don't know that um, it's going to be that difficult for him uh, like it's been in the last few days. I think he's going to get there. I, I just think it, this whole thing was, was unnecessary. And again, a lot of people are against me on this. You know, a lot of people think, no, it's a good idea to hold this up. The fact that we don't have a constitutional officer that's a third in line for the president. I guess, thank God that Joe Biden is with Mitch McConnell today. And not with Kamala Harris, right? Because if uh, Joe L. Baboso Biden was with Kamala K. Mala Eris, right, the vice president, then, man, and there was, God forbid, some sort of tragedy, we'd be in trouble because we wouldn't have an elected constitutional officer uh, in, that to be the third in line to the presidency. And again, I, I don't wish anybody any ill will, but I think, man, this is a problem. So I, I do think we shouldn't be flippant in this uh, saying, ah, oh, let it take as long as it needs. So we got to work it out. These are growing pains. No, no, it's none of the above. McCarthy ha- had a conference vote before all this happened and got, I don't know, 180, 190. So it was clear then that he had the majority. And there were certain people saying that, you know, we're going to challenge you and whatnot, but they had plenty of time to do these challenges. This is clearly, in my opinion, uh, a political show of force where the it's I'm going to use the term tyranny of the minority <laughs> going after the majority, going after the guys like um, Jim Jordan and Jim Banks and so many others that are saying, you know what, we, we've got McCarthy's back. And again, I'm not singing a ringing endorsement for McCarthy. I'm really not. I'm just uh, more interested in doing the country's business and, and moving forward with our Republican majority that should be more effective than the last Congress we had that was tax and spend, tax and spend, tax and spend to the point where we're in a recession, as opposed to uh, holding up the flow of things, not having a constitutional officer and playing political games that will benefit uh, very few people who are getting tons of headlines and uh, seemingly becoming, um, you know, more of a conservative rock star. Uh, more of a um, conservative um, hero. And while that's fantastic when you're doing a committee hearing and you're roasting somebody that's a witness in your committee, um, that's great. In this case, it's it's infighting that, in my opinion, should be done behind closed doors and shouldn't be done at the expense of the American people 
when the entire party and the country are waiting to move forward with a Republican majority and, and that agenda. And instead of grabbing headlines saying, wow, in a very swift manner, Speaker McCarthy and the Republican majority moved to do X, Y, and Z at the border, X, Y, and Z on the economy, X, Y, and Z to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act. None of that stuff is happening. Why? Of course we know why. Because right now we're dominated by headlines of a few names that are just grabbing all the headlines. And these are people I like. You know, I, I, I saw Congressman Matt Gates at CPAC and I said hello and, and I took a picture with him and I, I think he's terrific. I just think this is not the time or place for, for this type of uh, uh, display. But, you know, what do I know? Anyway, your thoughts, your calls, all of that, we'll get to that stuff uh, throughout the evening as well as in the final hour of the program with Open Phones Across America, Open Phone America, one of my faves. Our telephone number, 866-505-4626, 866-50-JIMBO is the phone number. And you can get me at Rich Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of these social media. Now, tonight, straight ahead, we've got a few um, really good guests that are coming on to talk about a lot of things, not the least of which is uh, Cliff May from the Washington Times, who's going to talk about a piece on Africa. Recently, the president, Biden, had a delegation from Africa in Washington. I was actually in Washington that day when, when that was going on, so I heard a lot about it from some of the folks I was talking to, so we're going to get an update on that. Plus, we've got Lance Crayon. He's uh, one of the authors at the Center for Security Policy, and he's going to talk about the impact of China within the uh, establishment of Hollywood. And uh, I think that's uh, definitely something we've got to watch out for. And not the least of which, uh, coming up next, is Cassandra Spencer. She's a former um, military officer and worked at Facebook and then became a whistleblower at Facebook because she saw things that shouldn't be happening. And she's coming up next. So don't go anywhere. I am Rich Valdez, again, at Rich Valdez on all of these social media. And we're coming right back. Right, America, welcome back. I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And our phone number, 866-505-4626. Now, uh, Cassandra Spencer, she's a former United States Army public affairs officer turned Facebook insider. And while she was at Facebook, she uncovered some things that were not uh, on the level, reported them to Project Veritas, became a whistleblower. And she is our guest. Cassandra Spencer, welcome. Thank you, Rich. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Now, I've got a lot of love for Project Veritas. I go back with O'Keefe. I, I, I worked with um, Project Veritas uh, running the whole national operation back in 2014, 2015. So I have not only an appreciation, but a respect for the type of work that you guys did. Tell us how, uh, I guess, this whole story starts. You were in the military. You get out of the military. Is that right? You became a veteran and then you started working at Facebook? Yeah. So, um, you know, as I was transitioning out of the military, I ended up getting hired to work at the um, as a contractor at the Facebook offices in Austin, Texas. Um, and I was just kicking off my life down here, you know, starting my civilian life. And within a couple months of me working at Facebook, I started noticing odd notes on accounts. And it just so happened that James had tweeted, hey, if you're on the inside of any of these companies, reach out. So I did not thinking, you know, anything would come of it because uh, I wasn't even entirely sure of what I was doing at the time. 
Um, and from there, everything just kind of snowballed. I ended up being escorted out by Facebook security. Um, and I ended up becoming the first insider in Project Veritas's insider program. So, um, yeah, that's kind of, that's the TLDR. But, yeah, I went on to be an undercover journalist for them for a few years. So uh, it sounds like we missed each other by a couple of years. Very cool. So now what type of um, notes or, you know, um, what type of um, differences or nuances were you seeing with some accounts versus others? Yeah. So actually, um, I was hired for a job that I didn't think was going to be controversial in nature at all. I actually worked doing processing intellectual property claims. Um, Not something that I would have thought would have been political in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as I go through these tickets that would come in, um, whenever I would pull up a, you know, either complaint or, you know, possibly offending account, I could see all of the account notes, uh, the way the back end of Facebook worked, at least in 2017, 2018. Um, so I started noticing that it was always on conservative accounts where I would see these notes, you know, like if I had action in account, for instance, someone had violated copyright. It would say, like, copyright violation, action by Cassandra Spencer, uh, Mm -hmm. for instance. But I would see notes that were on the back ends of accounts that would say, IA de-boost live distribution. And it even had the engineer's name on it. Um, And I knew that these were, and it also indicates on the account notes whether the user is notified or not. None of these accounts had any user notification And so, you know, you see it once or twice, you kind of think, oh, that's a weird note on account. Like, I don't entirely know what it means, but I can read English. Right. And then, you know, being a curious person, I just kind of fall down this rabbit hole of noticing a pattern that this is only happening to conservative accounts. And so then I start looking for more information. Just to chime in real quick, when you're talking Mm -hmm. about de-boosting, you're talking about, like, having them appear less in the organic, um, like, wall or when people are scrolling and let's say they follow these conservative accounts, they're going to see less of this content. That's what you're saying? Exactly. So very similar to like a shadow ban. Um, Every Mm -hmm. company will use different terminology for this specific action. It was called a de-boost. Got it. So um, it was particularly on the live feed videos. So if you were live streaming on Facebook, this program, for instance, you might receive a de-boost to where even uh, the people who follow you wouldn't be notified when you went live. So if you had a million followers, maybe you'd only have a couple hundred watching your live stream, and you'd be thinking to yourself, that's odd. Right. And that would be one of the reasons for it. Wow. So what what type of action did you start taking? I just started gathering information, you know, um, just being a curious person. I just started... I would work routinely, I would work evenings at Facebook. And so sometimes I would be there because, you know, Facebook is an international company. We would be there up until one o'clock in the morning, um, actioning copyright claims. And so, you know, I would just start looking into it. Um, the back end of Facebook works very similar to the front end of Facebook where they'll have internal employee groups, just like the groups that any other person would see on Facebook. And within some of these groups, particularly in like the trust and safety uh, type sections that were in charge of content moderation, I then noticed some like reports and odd like PowerPoint presentations 
that made it pretty clear that the company was trying to target conservative forms of speech and um, that they didn't want the public to know about it. Wow. And uh, I want to get in depth on your um, what really, I guess, the, the straw that broke the camel's back where you said, look, I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this, I'm gathering all this information. Um, what was it that said, made you say, you know what, I, I've got to, you know, speak up. I've got to do something and be brave right now. So um, it kind of just goes into my personality. You know, I joined the Army. I started my Army journey back in 2004, so height of the Iraq War. Well, thank you for your um, I was service. A student at, oh, thank you. Um, it was a pleasure to serve. But I was actually an NYU student. And I oh, had me never too. Go Violets. The military. Yep. <laughs> Go Violets. Exactly. And so, as you know, a very liberal institution. Yeah. And um, I was there and everyone in my classes were arguing about the Iraq war back in 2004. And I realized that nobody in the room would probably ever go to Iraq, ever have to experience warfare. Mm. Um, and so that kind of bothered me just like on a personal level. So I decided I was going to join the military because I decided I didn't want to just be somebody who was arguing about whether people should go to war or not without actually be willing to set foot and see what was going on the ground myself. Wow. Uh, so mind you, by the time I actually commissioned in 2010, the war had more or less uh, most of the combat operations had died down and I ended up being assigned to a intelligence unit in Hawaii. <laughs> Right. Um, I never went to Iraq or Afghanistan, but that same sort of mentality um, has kind of followed me throughout my whole life. And so when I was at Facebook, it really became an issue of, I see this is going on. I don't see anybody. I know that this is the kind of thing where if I bring it up to my supervisor, they're going to tell me to, that's not what you're supposed to be looking for. <laughs> that's not what we're paying you to look for. And so, you know, I saw the tweet from James and was like, if not you, then who? Somebody's got to say something. It's the right thing to do. And so, you know, I did. And for months, um, I was kind of just gathering information and I would, you know, send over anything that I thought was pertinent. And uh, for my efforts, one day I walked into work, didn't think anything of it. And I was uh, locked in a room for two hours by Facebook security and interrogated. They asked to see my personal cell phone. Wow. So hold on. You went to work, you showed up, and the Facebook security people said, hey, come with us, and they put you in a room? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, my supervisor wow. came over and said, hey, uh, we need to talk to you in the conference room. And so I go into a conference room. And, well, before you, know, you get into what happened in the table. conference room, I want to leave the audience on a cliffhanger because we're going to take a quick break in a moment. Um, and I want to remind people that uh, who you are. We're on with uh, Cassandra Spencer. She was in the United States Army as an officer. She dealt with public affairs and intelligence. Then she went into Facebook and was on the inside seeing how they treat conservatives and conservative speech. So don't go anywhere. We're coming right back with Cassandra Spencer. And your calls, 866-505-4626. I'm Rich Valdez. Don't go anywhere.
All right, America, welcome back. It's Rich Valdez, 866-505-4626. And our guest is Cassandra Spencer. Now, she's an Army intelligence person that went to uh, NYU, graduated, commissioned as an officer in the Army, uh, left the Army as a veteran, began her civilian career, started working at Facebook, doing some uh, what would be considered benign work of flagging copyright infringements on videos. And lo and behold, she discovers that Facebook is censoring conservative speech, and she decided to do something about it. And that's when corporate security at Facebook uh, at her office said, hey, ma'am, come with us. Let's pick it up with Cassandra Spencer. Welcome back. Thanks, uh, Rich. Yeah. So I go to work one day. You know, my manager says we need to meet with you in the conference room. And, you know, when you walk into a conference room and you see everybody seated around the table and they're waiting for you on the other side, you know that's not going to be a good day. The first thing you do is look at the floor and make sure there's no plastic. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> so um, they tell me that I'm about to be fired. And so I ask them why, of course. And they say, we can't tell you that. And I was like, okay. And they said, um, and Facebook security would like to go through your, your cell phone. Wow. And I, I just remember giving them the most puzzled look. Because, first of all, there was nothing on my cell phone, for the record. But right. I asked them, I said, well, if I let you look at my phone, does that mean I get to keep my job? And they're like, no. Yeah, why on earth would no, I play like, your game? <laughs> yeah. Why in the world would I let you have access to my personal cell phone? Mind you, this is not a company phone. Right. And so um, we kind of went round and round about this, where they were just adamant about seeing my cell phone. And I wouldn't give it up. And so finally, we were in there for probably a good two hours, kind of having just this round, circular conversation where uh, they wouldn't tell me why I was being let go, and they wanted, really wanted to see my phone. And so finally I asked them, I said, well, this conversation clearly isn't going anywhere. Can I leave? And I will never forget what the managers from the contracting company that I was with said. They said, well, and Facebook security. They said, well, legally we can't detain you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like I I look at them and I was like, are you joking? Of course you can't detain me. (laughs) (laughs) what is this and so um i wasn't even allowed to go collect my belongings from my desk um i was a relatively new corporate practice the last 10 20 years i I hear that a lot from just anybody people i've known they're like hey they closed my department down and they just they said we had to leave and they'd mail us everything it's just weird well what was crazy is that for nearly a month Facebook actually wouldn't even mail me or deliver me back my like personal belongings. I'm talking like headphones, you know, pictures of my daughter, desk knickknacks. Right. And Blackmail. I actually had to threaten to call the Austin police. <laughs> wow. They said if you don't give me my stuff back, I'm going to call the cops. And so finally um they sent a representative out from the contract company who met me at a Starbucks and um, I actually recorded him um, since I had been, you know, in touch with PV by that time. I knew to record them. And they admitted that Facebook wouldn't tell the contract company anything about the reason why I was let go, that they were being shady about it. 
you know, and uh, they actually put me on another contract at Google, ironically. <laughs> See what you could find <laughs> I might there. Not have been that bad of an employee. <laughs> that's that's amazing. All right, folks. Let me let me remind everybody. We're on with Cassandra Spencer. Uh, she worked with Project Veritas. Was a whistleblower at Facebook, exposing the corruption and censorship happening on the inside of Facebook, and eventually wrote a book. Uh, the impact of uh, how I went behind enemy lines in our struggle against the far left. And we'll talk about the book uh, in, the, in the next segment. Uh, so you, you get kicked out, you know, um, nearly uh, detained illegally, and uh, you get your stuff back at a Starbucks. You get a new gig at Google. Tell us about the work that you did with Project Veritas. Yeah, so eventually um, the Google job, they kind of stuck me in a call center. You know, there was nothing nothing to see there truly. Um, and so obviously I've been in project Veritas in touch with them this, uh, throughout this journey. And so eventually, you know, they said, why don't you come and work for us? And so, uh, the rest is sort of history and really I'm probably the thing I went undercover in Beto's Senate campaign, uh, Bernie's primary campaign, hmm. And I even got Google executives. One of the great things about me having that background working in tech was that um, there was even a Google executive who was the former head of trust and safety who talked about back in 2019 how Google was trying to prevent the next Trump situation um, using something called algorithmic fairness, um, where they were altering the search results in the Google search engine. Unbelievable. All right, folks, she's Cassandra Spencer, and uh, she's the author of the book, Impact, How I Went Behind Enemy Lines in Our Struggle Against the Far Left. Cassandra Spencer, uh, she's on Twitter, at Cassandra Spencer, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the book and her experience as a whistleblower from the inside of Facebook. Plus, I want to get her reaction on the Twitter files, because that um, dropped yesterday as well, and it's getting drowned out by some of the media. So don't go anywhere. Don't move a muscle. I am Rich Valdez, and we're coming right back. All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez, our guest is Cassandra Spencer. She's a Facebook whistleblower. And uh, some news that I just took a look at here, this came out yesterday. Twitter says it's going to relax its ban on political advertising. So Twitter seems to be um, doing a little bit better each time I, I see what's going on. But we haven't yet seen what happens with with Facebook. And some are saying that the Facebook files are going to be even worse than the Twitter files. Uh, let us go to Matt in Eastern North Carolina on WTKF, who has a question for Cassandra Spencer. Hey, Matt, you're on with Rich Valdez and Cassandra Spencer. Hello, Rich and Cassandra. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you all. Go for it, Matt. I have, uh, Cassandra has only reinforced my opinion that Facebook does not like conservative speech. I mean, I know people that get banned for for, for the littlest thing, and I'm amazed that they, they want to look at her personal cell phone, and I'm, I feel bad for what happened to her. Yeah, you're, I think you're right, Matt. And, and Cassandra, would you say it's that they just don't like conservatives' speech, or is it like they associate it with uh, domestic violence, uh, extremism, uh, terrorism, or is it just like, hey, we're a bunch of libs and we hate you? 
it's really one and the same. Um, it's both. You have the ones who are the true believers who are, they think they are activists. They think they are freedom fighters. They think they are, you know, um, protecting the Facebook ecosystem from the evil conservatives and all of their bad opinions. Just spend a little time on that. When you're at mm -hmm. lunch, you're in your cubicle, you're going to coffee or the water cooler, whatever. What what are some of the things that your colleagues uh, would tell you with regard to this? Oh, well, most of the colleagues, you know, I mean, everyone's there to just do their job. But there would literally be laughing and contempt when we would get complaints from conservative conservative accounts. People internally, like if a conservative submits a ticket, it would not be uncommon to hear coworkers like laughing about it. Like, yeah, we're not going to do anything to help them. Yeah, no, no action. Um, and send them, you know, just some canned response. And so, like I said, it's a very... And it's almost hard to differentiate between the two. Um, the ones who are the true believers who think that, you know, it is their job to police speech on Facebook versus the ones who just don't like conservatives, um, not just because they don't like their opinions. It has nothing to do with they don't actually think that conservatives are a domestic terrorist threat or, you know, a threat of violence or extremism. Uh, they just don't like them. So yeah. it, and everything else really is just something they make up mix of the two. Yep. And when you go into the offices, um, I talk in the book about how when I walked in there, um, one of the first things I noticed is it was literally floor to ceiling, like propaganda, liberal propaganda posters with various slogans, like, you know, um, you know, like just name your liberal catchphrase, you know, yeah, Oh, yeah. This, my body, my choice this machine fight fascist fight fascist, trans rights or human rights, you know, like all those kinds of things. But I said it was kind of creepy because even in the military, never in my life did I see propaganda on that level. I said, if I were to compare it to somebody, I said, imagine if you were in the military and you walked down a hallway in a military building and all you saw were those Uncle Sam posters pointing at you from floor to ceiling. It was like that. Fascinating. It really is fascinating to see that. And, you know, and just on a quick tangent, I, I was um, looking at a, a pitch I got for a guest to come on the program, and they wanted to talk about the influence of the CIA and other intelligence agencies operating within different sectors in America, whether it was tech or one one of them was talking about Hollywood. And uh, it was interesting. This woman was a former CIA person, and she was saying how she she knew and worked with actively many people that worked in different Hollywood studios and that a big part of their job was to guide and direct the content that was coming out of Hollywood. And again, this was happening in the sixties and seventies. So I'm thinking, you know, Hollywood in the sixties and seventies is today's Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat, right? Cause that's where people are watching videos and seeing what's going on, TikTok, And it's just remarkable to me how, while they, they keep saying content moderation, but it just seems like content control. Absolutely. Um, With today's Twitter files that just dropped, I was reading through them and you can really see where the government is coming down hard. They want Twitter to find Russian collusion and they get upset when Twitter's like, hey, we don't really see it. 
you know. (laughs) My bad. We can't find them. (laughs) Yeah. And trust me, those employees, like I said, you know, at the best, they passively dislike conservatives. At worst, they, you know, have this kind of deluded mindset that like conservatives are out to get them somehow. And so they want to find the conclusions that the government or the CIA or the FBI, whoever it is, wants to find. And um, so really the whole argument that we heard for so many years, well, you know, Twitter's a private company, Facebook's a private company. Mm-hmm. Well, how private is it when the government is strong arming these companies with a conclusion and they're like, we have this conclusion, please find us the evidence to support this conclusion. Right. It's a, which, uh, it's a very um, Stalinistic tactic. Tell us a little bit about the book. Yeah, so um, the book is actually just kind of me. It started off as a journal, and it's just me telling my story um, from the beginning, how I even ended up at Facebook in the first place, to kind of some of my adventures undercover. Um, like I said, I was undercover in Beta O'Rourke's Senate campaign back in 2018, mm. um, undercover with tech employees like uh, Google executive Jen Janai, um, undercover in the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, had an awkward experience where I had to hold Joe Biden's hand for three minutes. <laughs> that <laughs> happened. And so, you know, not all of it is serious. I try not to take myself too seriously. And I I sort of talk about my own misfortunes, uh, both personal and professional, to hopefully uh, humanize this process and really show people that anyone can make a difference in this world. You don't have to be in a position of power. You don't have to be someone who was born with a lot of uh, much of anything. Um, I kind of joke that I've forced dumped my way through my life. So, yeah, you and me both. Uh, now, I want to ask you a question <laughs> because you said you spent three minutes holding Joe Biden's hand. If that, in fact, happened, I want to know how many times did he sniff your hair? You know, no hair sniff for me. Um, Lucky you. It was actually... I was standing in a line. He came to shake my hand, and then out of my peripheral, all of a sudden, a climate change protester started screaming in his face, and uh, then he had my hand in a vice grip and wouldn't let go. He wouldn't let go. (laughs) Cassandra, save me. If you don't save me from this climate crazy, you ain't black. Is that what he said? Did he say something like that? You know, he would have had my race wrong. I'm I'm Asian, not black, but, you know, it's Joe Biden. He probably doesn't even know what day of the week or what state he was in. Yeah, well, that's his famous line. Well, let me uh, remind everybody about the book. It's called Impact, How I Went Behind Enemy Lines in Our Struggle Against the Far Left. Her name is Cassandra Spencer. Check her out. She's on Twitter at Cassandra Spencer, S-P-E-N-C-R, no E at the end there, uh, at Cassandra Spencer on uh, Twitter. And uh, you can learn more about her book at defiancepress.com, defiancepress.com. Cassandra, I want to thank you for joining us tonight. Excellent, riveting conversation. I'm hoping you can come back as you have more updates. Awesome. Would love to, Rich. Have a great evening. You too. All right. Don't move a muscle. There is more to come straight ahead. We're going to get into uh, the rest of the nitty gritty on what's going on in China, what's going on with the uh, delegation of, of African delegates that visited the White House and the latest update on that, plus your calls. You know, we're, we're always doing those. 866-505-4626. I'm Rich Valdez.
All right, America, welcome back. I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, by the way, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And I want to get your take on what's going on with Facebook. Let's go to Evergreen, Montana, and check in with our buddy Frank. Hey, Frank, what's going on? Welcome. Hi. I want to say I'm glad I got got away from looking at Facebook. It just warped my mind for a few years there. Uh, How so? How did it warp your mind? It's sort of, basically, it's it's a form of, oh, God, uh, uh, self-idolatry. It's sort of a, uh, it's not motherly love. It's, uh, it's you become more of a, a, a weird person. You know, you have to friend people, and you have to unfriend people. All of a sudden, oh, you, you don't want to unfriend them. Uh, you're in an alternate weird world you know it's like a virtual prison and it's just it's uh, uh tell me more because i think some people look at social media and and the the metasphere if you will or the metaverse as it's called and they say man i can explore everything here i can see my friends in bali and i could i could you know virtually do so much and keep up with my friends in san diego and all over the world and they feel more free than they've ever been so and i'm not saying i'm arguing against you i'm just curious uh, why do you say it's like a a jail? To me, it's narcissism. It's it's more like uh, it's not brotherly love. It's just you're just in love with yourself, and you're not in love with community. You're unplugged. You're trapped into a virtual, you know, cesspool of you know people you, you really don't want as your friends. Interesting, you know, interesting you know, take, Frank. Yeah, I can tell you. I mean, I I don't. F- I could see the the narcissistic aspect. Like you know, if you go to somebody's page, like mine for example, <laughs> and all you see is pictures of them and the stuff that they're doing, uh, one could make that judgment and say, yeah, this guy's only talking about himself. But I think a lot of my friends that are on there, they're into different things, you know. And they're like, you know, I have a friend who's a farmer, and he puts, you know, his latest, you know, crops and new things that he's growing and how he's growing them and whatnot. And my other friend who lives in San Diego, he um, he does, I don't even know what he does. He's like a graphic artist for, for, for films and television and whatever. And, you know, I see him and his kids and what he does. He takes them to the, to the Padres game. And, and, and it gives me a chance to feel like I'm kind of looped in, even though I haven't seen him since 2017. And I've probably, in real life, I've missed, I don't know, that many, you know, four or five birthdays of his kids. But I've watched them grow and I see the pictures. And, you know, it's a nice way to kind of, stay connected to people. Uh, so, you know, in, for me, it's a great way to kind of and keep in touch with so many great fans. We've got fans in Montana, fans um, all across the country that kind of tune in on, on streaming or whatever, and they drop me a note on Facebook, and I'm able to, you know, interact with them a little bit, which um, doesn't always happen, you know, if, when the show is not on the air. So I have an appreciation for it, but I do agree with you. It can be a trap for some people where that's all they do. They don't go outside. They don't find a way to communicate with other people. And and like you said, brotherly love where, you know, hey, let's go to lunch. Let's grab a sandwich. Let's have a cafecito in the Cuban coffee place. So, Frank, I appreciate the call. Always a pleasure. Godspeed to you. And up next, we're going to talk about, you know, what's going on with Hollywood in China. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez.
The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. Sebastian Maniscalco. I'm a comedian. In my 20s, I was in like in a company, and I don't know like how marketing, sales. Yeah, you're a brand. You're a company. Yeah, and like Jay Z says, I'm a businessman. Yeah, yeah. To that, remind me not to quote any hip hop lyrics again. That was just a big miss. When you first said, it, I'm like, yeah, he's a businessman. Yeah, I nailed it at the end. I pulled it together. It just took me a minute. The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hi there and good evening. I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Welcome to the program. Our telephone number, 866-505-4626, 866-505-4626. And again, if you want to chime in on social media, it's at Rich Valdez with an S on all of the social media platforms. I welcome you to do that. And I uh, was listening to a clip of audio earlier, a fascinating clip because it reminded me of when I was a kid, Ronald Reagan was president and the first president I could remember. And he was always very patriotic. And I just remembered him being very patriotic. And I always had a a liking for him because I guess first president uh, I'd ever seen and remembered and heard give a speech. And I always look at clips from from Reagan from time to time here and there. And I, I ran across a testimony of his while he was still a young actor. And you'll hear the youth in his voice. Uh, And it was back in 1947 when there was, uh, you know, committee hearings in Congress where they were saying, you know, that we should be banning communism or we should be banning, you know, the promotion of communism and anything un-American in our in our, you know, in our uh, films and things of that nature. And it's fascinating to me to see how we once had a guy that, you know, was so patriotic and fought against communism who was president of the Screen Actors Guild, who eventually became president to where we are now, where, you know, so much of the influence in Hollywood comes from China and China influences films in all sorts of places. And it, it seems like their propaganda knows no bounds. But I want you to hear uh, both uh, uh, former or, yeah, former President Reagan and, um, and one other person that are testifying in this short clip. Listen to this. Fear of communist subversive activities has developed into hysterical frenzy, which grows daily. Appointed by Congress to investigate, Chairman Parnell Thomas opens the hearing. He's investigating alleged communist influence an infiltration in the moving picture industry must not be considered or interpreted as an attack on the industry itself. The first of the screen stars to testify before the Committee on Un-American Activities is veteran actor Adolf Marshall. Once known as the screen's best-dressed man, he states... The Communist Party in the United States should be outlawed by the Congress of the United States. It is not a political party. It's a conspiracy to take over our government by force which would enslave the American people as the Soviet government, 14 members of Politburo, hold the Russian people in abject slavery. The court is packed with fashionably dressed women, as witness Robert Taylor takes the stand. In answer to a committee question on whether the Communist Party should be outlawed in America, Mr. Taylor replies, I personally certainly do believe that the Communist Party should be outlawed. However, I'm not an expert on politics or of what the reaction would be. If I had my way about it, they'd all be sent back to Russia or some other unpleasant place. 
The congressional investigation is not a judicial hearing, but refusal to testify results in a contempt of Congress charge. Next on the list of witnesses is Ronald Reagan, who says, I will be frank with you that as a citizen, I would hesitate or I would not like to see any political party outlawed on the basis of its political ideology, because we've spent 170 years in this country on the basis that democracy is strong enough to stand up and fight for itself against the inroads of any ideology, no matter how much we may disagree with it. But at the same time, I never, as a citizen, want to see our country become so, uh, or become urged by either fear or resentment of this group that we ever compromise with any of our democratic principles through that fear or resentment. Well, we agree I with that, I still think too. that democracy can do it. We agree with that. We agree with that. Thank you very much. So that's a clip from the um, United States House of Representatives uh, Committee on Un-American Activities. And you heard from Robert Taylor and from Ronald Reagan. This was, again, 1947. That was the year my mom was born. And here we are today where you've got China weighing in on film festivals, China weighing in on our own um, Hollywood films. And to help us break it down, we've got Lance Crayon. Now, Lance is a former senior news editor for Global Times. He uh, also is a, a writer with the Center for Security Policy and a documentary filmmaker. And he also, you know, worked inside the propaganda machine for 10 years in Beijing and Los Angeles. I don't know which one's worse, but he's going to let us know. Lance, welcome to the program, sir. Hey, welcome. Thank you. And Happy New Year. Amen to that, brother. So tell us um, a little bit about your background um, and the time, I guess, you spent in Beijing and how, um, you know, how you ended up there. Okay, great. Uh, well, I've been a journalist most of my life, uh, and I was in South Korea um, in Seoul and Busan, um, working with the uh, Busan Film Festival, uh, writing um, in 2007, 2008. And then from there, went to Beijing uh, simply for the opportunity um, when you know, this is when Hu Jintao was president, it was certainly a different country then, certainly a different Beijing. Um, so from, so from Seoul went to Beijing, uh, and started working for China Radio International. And what was your experience working inside of, uh, the, the media in China? Overall, I mean, it was, it was pretty tame. Um, it's, it wasn't, I was really more in an editorial uh, role. So, as they saw us or the, 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 the people that hired us we were there to train Chinese young Chinese journalists. And that, well, that was our title. That was the expectation of course, but that was really just, that was really just a front, um, for, you know, what, you know, what was going on, I guess, in a, in a, in a bigger picture. Um, yeah, just basically in, a, in more of a training role, and then, like I said, editorial role where we were just correcting the grammar mistakes and uh, and fact checking things like that. Now, did you experience a lot of, um, I guess, uh, coercion or direction that was given? Did you feel that you had free reign to to tell the the truth or the fact checking that you were doing was that guided and directed from anybody up above, or did you feel like everything was pretty much above board? No, I, nothing was above board. Um, you know, you're dealing with a propaganda machine from the, the, you know, the CPC. So it was all a front, okay? Like, like state-run media exists for the sole purpose to make sure that journalism does not happen in China, okay? Mm. It is, yeah. I mean, it's, it's all fluff pieces, marketing pieces, 
Um, There's no such thing as breaking news in China, certainly with state-run media. Um, Everything that you read, I mean almost everything, is a copy-and-paste job from the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. And then our job was to sort of just rewrite whatever so-called journalists had copy-and-pasted and and sent to us. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, This has been going on for a long time. And plagiarism runs – plagiarism is really just a way of life in China. They don't have a problem with it. They don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, Even like like graduate schools, for example, you're allowed to you're allowed to plagiarize up to thirty percent of your graduate thesis. They have committees that judge <laughs> what thirty percent what, what that thirty percent is. It's insane, I know, but it's true. Yes, it's not it's not discouraged at all. It's not it's not frowned upon. It's not, it's it's actually encouraged because they see it as a form of flattery. It's really it's lazy is what it is. What it comes down to, but they see but, but when they plagiarize the Chinese in general, mainland Chinese. They see it as like you know we're we're giving you a compliment because I'm copying you. I kid you wow. not. Yeah, I guess they see yeah. it the same way when they're knocking off Rolex watches and Fendi purses and all of the <laughs> other exactly. things that intellectual great, great property point. they steal. Yeah, great That's point. Crazy. Yeah, great point. They, and you know, and, and the New York Times. It's funny because they're so reticent about it. Um, it, it the main one reason is because Chinese state-run media advertises heavily with the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and New York Times. So. For the millions, millions of dollars that, that the CPC spends on advertorials with those newspapers, in return, they not only get favorable coverage, but they also look the other way regarding plagiarism lawsuits. Wow. Yeah, well, yes, this has been going on for, again, uh, 2010, uh, to my knowledge, probably longer, but I've been documenting and writing about it since 2010, yes. I was shocked when I first discovered it as well, the way it was just tolerated. But if you go through, I, I mean... Go pick an issue of Global Times and just go through, pick a story, it doesn't matter what page, and copy and paste the story or to pick, pick one paragraph and throw it in to do a Google search and see what comes up. You'll see that it, it, it's a mirror or you know, very similar to what has already been published in, in, in the newspapers I've just mentioned. Very common. This is every day. Wow. All right, folks, yeah, we're on yeah. with Lance Crayon. He's a former senior news editor uh, for Global Times, and he's a writer and documentarian uh, with the Center for Security Policy. And he's got a piece on uh, the recent um, influence from China onto the International Film Festival uh, in is in Taiwan. So I want to get into that, uh, the Venice International Film Festival in Taiwan. We're going to get into that in a moment. Let me give everybody the phone number, 866-505-4626, We're coming right back to that with Lance Crayon. I'm Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. I am Rich Valdez. Our guest is Lance Crayon, former senior news editor at the Global Times. He's a documentarian and a writer with the Center for Security Policy. And I have a question. Uh, Listen to this. What do you think, um, let's see, Batman, Top Gun, um, and Knights of the Caribbean have in common? I know, you're scrambling to figure it out. I was too. The answer is they're all banned in China. <laughs> China banned these along with the Ten Commandments. 
listen to this, it banned the movie in the 1930s under the category of superstitious films due to its religious subject matter involving gods and deities. So, I mean, they have rules to deny people uh, the right to release a film just for, you name it, there's so many reasons. And uh, Lance Crayon, you not only have made films, but you um, have a piece that you wrote for the Center for Security uh, Policy and uh, about this, how China got involved in banning certain films at the Taiwan uh, Venice International Film Festival in Taiwan. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, it was the Venice International Film Festival. It was um, the 78th edition, and Taiwan has always uh, Taiwan has had a had a presence at that film festival going back 30 years. Okay, and mm-hmm. what they did was the CPC officials called uh, the directors of the Venice International Film Festival and said, "This year, you're not going to use the word Taiwan in your program. You're going to scrub Taiwan, and you're going to use Taipei. Taipei being a, a city in China." not in Taiwan. So that's what they did. They had them delete scrub the name Taiwan from the entries. Now there there were Taiwan, there were Taiwanese films in this year's film festival, obviously, but they said that they were, the films were from Taipei. That's what happened. They're sort that they've been scrubbing, you know, from everything from airline advertisements. We've heard about, uh, you name it for the past five years that I know of, that I've been tracking, just removing the word Taiwan. And the key, um, the, 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 um, I'm sorry, the, the, the one thing about this film festival to keep in mind mm-hmm. is they have a virtual reality competition and Taiwan dominates virtual reality technology right now. They are the front, front wave of it. China wants that virtual, China wants that technology more than anything. And even in the virtual film category, of this year's of last year's festival, they did it again this year too. Um, uh, you know, it doesn't say Taiwan. It's these films from Taipei, a city in China, a Chinese city. So they're they're, they're removing you know the Taiwan identity and they're they're conditioning people out, you know just outside of China to go ahead and get used to the fact, or they want you to see it as a fact that Taiwan is more or less the twenty fifth province of China. Now, how do you? Um... I guess. How do you think the the general public reacts to this when they say, um, you know, do, does everybody just fall in line and say, "Oh, you got it, Taipei, it is," or do people yeah. like start to push back? They, you know, there's no pushback. They, there, there might be some vocal pushback, and there and there was a little bit, very, very little from from Venice, but the general public could care less. For example, this this category, this competition, the virtual reality program at the mm-hmm. festival toured the world. And after the film festival ended, the virtual, uh, virtual reality, the virtual reality film program was screened in Oregon at the, in Portland at the, uh, at, at the, the major city museum there. And again, they complied. It said films, these films were from Taipei. Now I contacted the, the I contacted that museum. They have no response, no comment. I contact, I try to get, try to get the director on the phone several times. They wouldn't even comment on it. Okay. What kind and of this, retribution would they, you know, experience if they did give a comment? Oh wow! I mean, you know, that a great question. There's no telling, and that's what's scary because you know how the CPC behaves. 
there's such a lack of transparency, you don't know what the response or how they would react. You really don't know. And nobody wants to find out. Um, if, if, the, if, the, if the museum there in Portland would have said, no, these films are from Taiwan, we're just in Taiwan, who knows? How, I mean, that's what's scary. I mean, how, to what degree would they respond? Rest assured, there would be a response. There would be a, there would be a response, reaction from the CPC. Nobody wants to find out. Yeah. So there's no pushback. There's no so every and this, this film festival program traveled America and Europe, and everyone followed them like everything else for the CPC and the CPC. Everyone complied. So when the there was Chinese. No pushback. Um, uh, uh, the Communist Party of China, when they decide to say, hey, you're not doing this, they're not just saying you're not going to do that when you're here in, in China or, or in even in Taiwan. It's, ha- it's wherever they're going. They're calling shots all over the world. Yes, they are. Absolutely. They're, they're calling shots with, with film, with everything. Yeah, worldwide. Now, tell us about the documentary that you've uh, produced. Okay. I made this as a side project, uh, self-financed, about graffiti in Beijing. This was during the last year that Hu Jintao was in office, from 2011-2012. And it was a, an entirely different country, entirely different city. Uh, it was a great time to be in Beijing. I mean, granted, yes, still ruled, you know, still communist, but, but it was so open, and there was a feeling among all Chinese and, and, and expats there that, you know, China was, was, was on a really great path, a friendly path, not like they're on now, of course. And it would just keep going after Hu Jintao left office. So the vibe in Beijing, the, the, the energy in Beijing, I mean, graffiti like is vilified in America. It's illegal. There's all those laws. It's, the penalties are harsh. That wasn't the case in China in 2012. Chinese were, I mean, it was a very small group of Chinese artists that I followed. I just seen the mm-hmm. documentary. They, they had free reign in the city and, and were, you're paying on the side of highways and, uh, you know, they, but they weren't, you know, they weren't defacing businesses. They weren't hurting anything. And in fact, and the Chinese citizens felt like they were making the city look better. And indeed they were, I mean, there's, there's one scene where the police show up and they tell them to keep painting. Had that happened in America, we've all been arrested. Yes. I thought I would have been deported. I, I was expecting the worst. No, it was, it was open. That just, it just gives you an idea of the mentality of, of, of China and, 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 and the vibe of that city and during that year, whereas where so the documentary actually be, where the city actually plays a role in the documentary, um, it, it's in the background, of course, but it just gives you an idea of like, wow, it was really open, and it was the vibe and and, and the pace and the, the path that China was on was nowhere near what they're doing now, but what we see now, uh, it was it was it was eye opening. The, the whole experience was, you know, was eye opening, really. Now, uh, Lance, let everybody know where they could, you know, find the work that you're working on and, and follow you. Absolutely. Well, I'm active on Substack and Quora. Um, I'm, uh, I'm working on a book now um, about you know, the Chinese threat and really the Chinese, Chinese operations here in Southern California. I live in the middle of Los Angeles, in, in the largest Chinese community on foreign soil in San Gabriel Valley. So I'm working on that. And uh, that book will be out hopefully by uh, probably another year. But, uh, my All right, Lance, I got to pause yeah. right there because we got a break. I want to thank you for coming on. Check him out on Substack, Lance Crayon, Center for Security Policy. I'm Rich Valdez, and more to come straight ahead on Ukraine, China, and all of the fun stuff happening in Africa. Don't go anywhere. Move. 
movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, and more. It's what women binge with Melissa Joan Hart and her friend Amanda Lee. Scott Grimes is here Thank with you. us. Voiceover, that is like my dream job. I think I just have too distinctive a voice and I can't manipulate it. That's why I'm right. not a good singer. This is how great Seth MacFarlane is. I went in to do it and I was talking like this and he goes, good, now just get rid of the neck thing that you just did because it's one, it's ugly. And then I just came out like this and came up with this guy named Steve Smith who has a tiny little lisp, but so does Scott Grimes, so it's perfect. What Women Binge, wherever you listen. All right, America, welcome back. I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And we were talking earlier about everything that was going on in China, and I want to kind of shift our attention a little bit to uh, what's happening in Africa, or with Africa, I should say, uh, because uh, Cliff May with the Washington Times He's got a piece out on Africa that I thought was interesting and I'd like him to share about. And we could talk about a couple of other um, foreign policy topics as well. He's also the founder and president of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Cliff May, welcome, sir. Uh, Very good to be with you, Rich. Likewise. Thank you. So uh, tell us about uh, this this piece. I remember I was in D.C. a couple of weeks ago. I broadcast out in the New York area, but... I was uh, at a Christmas party for the um, for one of the newspapers in town there, and I was told, uh, "Oh, they've got all the streets closed because there's a delegation uh, from Africa or different African delegations at the White House for this summit that President Biden had put on." And uh, I was like, "Oh, what's that about?" And they're like, "Oh, nobody really knows." You know, <laughs> so I said, "You know what? That's interesting. I'm going to find out from Cliff May." <laughs> so tell us what you know. I'll tell you, absolutely, and and uh, and you're right. Most of the people who talk about it talk about the traffic jams because yeah. they closed off streets and put up barricades. You couldn't get around it. And it was a big meeting. It was called a summit. Of course, anytime heads of state get together, they call that a summit. It's actually a Churchillian phrase. It, it, Churchill came up with that as as an idea, and it, because it, it conveys importance. This is the top. This is the most important. Right. And it's the first. Obama had a had a summit for African leaders back in 2014. Then with COVID and all. All that, all that this happened. And there was very little actually media coverage of it. There wasn't a whole lot to cover. The think tanks, uh, quite a few of them weighed in, mostly saying nice things. I followed it pretty carefully. And I thought, you know, um, I've got to be honest. Uh, I, this was a kind of a pretty sorry summit. And, and the reason I say that is because it in it, it, all the important issues, and there are a lot of important issues to deal with Africa today. If you care at all about Africa, I do. I lived there for three years. I was a New York Times correspondent, bureau chief there. I, I, I knew the content fairly well at one point. This was a lot of platitudes. This was a lot of happy talk. This was a lot of virtue signaling, a lot of promises of more aid to African countries, which generally don't do a whole lot of good. There was there were 50, oh, I think 49 heads of state plus the head of the uh, African Union, which is the African Union is not quite the same as the European Union, but it's, mm. it goes in that direction. Uh, and, and they all, all of them and their spouses got to come to a big dinner at the White House and Joe Biden uh, hosted that, and he said to his guests, as he often does, my name is Joe Biden. I am Jill Biden's husband. 
<laughs> and I wasn't there, but I watched. There was a tape of it. I, no, either they didn't get the joke, or they didn't think it was funny. There was nobody. There was nobody laughing. That's horrible. Uh, so, but to give you an idea of what what I mean by platitudes and happy talk, uh, there were various communities. A lot of the meetings were closed door t- to the press. Some pl- some sessions were open, but they, there were communiques. So, it t- so for example, one communique talked about that uh, the, the meeting had fo- focused on the vital role of civil society and the strength of our African diaspora communities in the United States. Well, yes, Hmm. who doesn't love civil society and African diaspora communities? That's great. A lot to talk about there. And then it said that Mr. Biden and Vice President Harris and members of the cabinet, quote, engaged extensively, extensively with African leaders on topics ranging from trade and investment to health and climate change to peace, security and governance to space cooperation. Well, Space yeah, well, cooperation, I, you know, wait till we get to, we're going to go to Mars with, uh, yeah, right. That's really, then there were discussions on food security and food resilience, a critical issue for our African partners who have been disproportionately impacted by the rise in food and fertilizer prices and disruptions to global supply chains as a result of Russia's war against Ukraine. Well, that's true, but it's, there's more to it than that. And, and, and so what, what I'd like to say a little bit, is about some of the, uh-huh. I think, really critical issues that were either not discussed at all or were given incredibly short shrift. And um, one yeah. of them that, that particularly irks me I, I, is this. As you know, maybe you've discussed this on your program before, President Biden has decided that he wants to end fossil fuels. He's got a war against mm-hmm. fossil fuels. And he thinks that's because Fossil fuel, the use of hydrocarbons, gasoline in our cars, other other hydrocarbons, fossil fuels. When you burn them, you produce carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide should not be called, by the way, a pollutant. It's what you ex- are exhaling right now. It's yeah. plant food. It, plants couldn't sure. live without it. But there's a theory. It's a, not an incredible theory that excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere retains heat, and that leads to global warming. That may or may not be true. That's a credible theory, but right there, are, there are no credible models that show we have a crisis with this. We've had about ah, about a, a one, maybe one and a half degree uh, temperature increase over the past, say, half century. Probably could have that again over the next half century. That's not a, that's not that's not fire and brimstone. That's not a crisis. But right. he's got in his head, Biden, that we, we've got we've got to do something about this. Now the problem is this. And I, I say this to somebody who, as I say, lived in Africa for three years. The thing Africa needs most, in addition to more free markets, more capitalism, which is another subject that was not discussed, because all the after at the end of the imperial era after World War II, all the countries of Africa pretty much took the socialist path to development, and that turned out to be either a dead end or a very rocky road, which is why a lot of African countries are not much more developed after all these years were or they've developed only a little, it hasn't worked out for them. But this administration is not going to talk about why free markets are helpful and better. But the other thing they need are hydrocarbons. Why do I say that? Because imagine you're an African farmer and you're producing a crop. Well, if you're producing it, you know, behind a a, a mule, well, you're not going to produce very much or you're doing it by hand. But if you have a tractor, well, now you can produce a lot more crop than you did before. But that is not going to be a plug-in hybrid or an EV, that tractor. It's going to run on, it's going to run on diesel. So, and that's yeah. a hydrocarbon. So you really need that. 
And then you need some way to get your excess crops to market because that's how you end up with some income. So you can buy a radio, a watch, a roof for your home, maybe sell you some more food for your kids that you didn't grow. You absolutely need that. Again, you can't, you can't plug that in. And one of the reasons you can't plug that in is because in sub-Saharan Africa, there's something like 600 million people who don't have electricity. Now, you've got to understand, and it wow. should be obvious, not having electricity means you are very, very poor. It means you, you and your kids can't read it uh, with adequate, adequate light at night. It means you can't turn on a fan, much less an air conditioner, to cool yourself off when it's hot. Electricity is, a, is very basic. You're talking yeah. about double the size of the United States population having no power. Yeah. All the time. That's exactly that's exactly what I'm talking about. If it's you massive. don't have electricity, you can't refrigerate food. You can't freeze food. Any of that. Now, if people say, well, use solar and wind. I hope it's obvious to anybody listening to your show, Rich, that you're not going to get solar and wind power to work in Africa anytime soon. That's mm -hmm. a huge – and by the way, solar and wind have their problems. One is when the sun doesn't shine, it doesn't produce electricity by solar. When the wind doesn't blow, it doesn't that way. You need transmission lines. There's all kinds of problems with that. It can't, it, it's not happening in this generation. It's not happening in the next generation. I can't predict further than that. So, they, so the countries of Africa really need hydrocarbons. Now, the price of gasoline, the price of diesel, it's all going up. And what's more, African governments are being bribed to stop using fossil fuels. So I forget how much, the German government paid the South Africans several hundred million dollars a few years, a year, a year or so ago, I can't remember the exact date, to stop using coal. But then when the Germans stopped being able to get gas and oil and coal from using coal Russia, <laughs> not only that, guess where they're buying it from? South Africa. Yeah, They're buying wow. it from South Africa, which they bribe not. And there was recently, I'm sure you, you heard this, there was this COP27, this big climate yeah. conference in, in Egypt and Sharm el-Sheikh, right? And one of the things they said, well, basically they said the West America and Europe need to pay reparations to countries suffering the effects of climate change and also to make sure that they don't use fossil fuels. That's, that may sound nice, but let me tell you why it's not. That money is going to go through the U.N. The U.N. is going to take a cut of it for its bureaucrats. Then it's going to go to the leaders, and we say leaders, of African nations. Some of them are. Others are rulers. And they're going to say, well, I'm going to take my cut, and, I gotta, and I'm going to buy myself a new Mercedes. It's not going to get down to the farmers. I tell you that again as somebody who lived and worked as a journalist in Africa for years. It's yeah, not going to help May, them. If hang on one second. We've got to take a quick pause here, and I want to pick up right where you left off, living in Africa and money getting laundered and stolen and squandered in, in these African nations by, by way of the U.N., intended to help farmers. Folks, Cliff May is the founder and president of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. I am Rich Valdez. We're coming right back. All right, America, welcome back. We're on with Cliff May, founder and president of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He's a columnist with the Washington Times. And I, um, I'm looking at his piece on, on the Africa Summit, 
<laughs> titled A Sorry Summit, Biden Avoids Pivotal Issues in Meeting with African Leaders. And Cliff May was just telling us about his time living in Africa and how the money that's intended uh, when these countries are paid off to not use fossil fuels, in fact, doesn't go to them. Cliff May. Yeah, I know it's going to. It- it's very hard to do because it tends to go through the government. It can, sometimes it can go through NGOs. It can go through various agencies, but it's very hard. And I won't go into a whole discourse with, for you on the difference between relief aid and development aid. But development is hard and it usually does require what, what, what we've had in the United States of these past years, which is a free market and competition, all of that. And it should be fair and not run by the government. I, I, I mean, I could give you examples. Maybe I should. I, I was I lived my home in in West Africa and the Ivory Coast. And the Ivory Coast in those days was not doing so bad. It was a the farmers there grew a lot of cocoa sent to Europe and America and other places to make all kinds of quality chocolates. Now the government did intercede, but they paid a reasonable price for the cocoa beans which these farmers grew. Next door, in those days in Ghana, the government insisted on a very low price. For the cocoa beans. So what did the Ghanaian farmers do? They would take bags of cocoa beans, put it on their head and walk across the border into the Ivory Coast to sell it so they could get a reasonable price for it. And that wow. wasn't even a competitive market price. That was just a reasonable price. But the government, but the people in the government, uh, you know, they wanted to make money off that, too. It was a kind of a kind of a tax. So development in Africa is very hard for a lot of reasons. But this is one of the things that should have been discussed, particularly the whole deal on hydrocarbons. And instead of debate, there was a dogma. There was one session that was billed as exploring the ways that the governments and peoples of the United States and African nations are partnering to transition away from fossil fuels as part of a just energy transition based on shared priorities. Who's defining what is just energy right. transition is and who's defining those priorities? At least have a debate on it, and there wasn't. Now, there are many other things that should have been discussed that were, that were also sidetracked, given short trips. One is what Beijing is doing in Africa. It's neo-imperialism. In all sorts of ways, they are just exploiting the hell out of the resources of Africa. And one of them that come to mind and that I write about is the Democratic Republic of Congo has a quite a good supply of cobalt. Yeah. And what cobalt is cobalt and useful? Lithium well, is what they're doing the uh, batteries, right? That's exactly right. Batteries for use in electric vehicles. The problem is that thousands, I've seen numbers of something like 40,000 children are doing the heavy work of mining in for and they're doing it in in in, uh, in Congo and they're doing it under inhumane conditions and in ways that cause environmental damage. They don't have any environmental requirements like we would have if we were doing it here, which we're, we're in other places we're not. Now, that cobalt that they extract, all of it, all of it is going to China for use in the batteries that they make and sell for electric vehicles. I think that should concern President Biden, the inhumanity with the children mining it and the environmental damage. But instead, he is urging and indeed subsidizing Americans to transition to electric vehicles that run on such batteries. Again, I'm not criticizing anybody for buying electric vehicle. You want an electric vehicle, go ahead and buy it. But buy it because you like the car. Don't buy it because you think you're doing something wonderful for the environment. Don't do it because you think because you drive an electric vehicle, you're the climate change is not going to happen. That's not the case. 
among other things, we, first of all, there's the whole question of, of, of whether – first of all, there's the, the – it's to make an electric vehicle is not green. Second of all, to make green right. power is not green because of the mining or solar power. All, none of that is actually green. Third, the, Chi- the Chinese do not believe in all this stuff. Yes, they're going to use – they're going to do renewable resources. They're going to use every form of energy. But they are right now using coal, which is – which is worse than other forms of energy, both in terms of emissions, if you worry about that, but also just in terms of pollutants. And they are, mine, they are mining and buying coal and building hand over fist power plants based on coal, which, again, is the most polluting. And the mo- if, you want, if you want to reduce carbon dioxide emissions, the simplest way to do it, very, very simple, use natural gas in place of coal. That, that cuts it by about half. That's why U.S. emissions have been diminishing. And even better, nuclear power, zero emissions. Zero pollution, by the way. Anyhow, so the Chinese, they didn't discuss also. They didn't discuss what Russia's doing. Now, Russia, by the way, Vladimir Putin has got the, the, there's something called the the, the Wagner Group. What's the Wagner Group? These guys are wreaking havoc over there, right? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. It's a shady military organization. There's something that's called mercenaries, but they only work for Putin. They just don't wear proper insignia. They on, on their well, before we get they into are, the Wagner Group, let me. Uh, I'm, I'm, our producer is telling us we've got to take a break here. So let, let's give uh, the phone number to the listeners: eight six six five zero five forty six twenty six. We're on with Cliff May, founder of the and president of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Uh, he's also a columnist with the Washington Times, and we're going to jump into the Wagner Group and what's going on in in that part of Europe right away. But first. A word from our sponsors. All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S. Our guest is... Cliff May, founder and president of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Check out his column in the Washington Times. And Cliff May, you were telling us about the Wagner Group. We've got about two minutes. Go right ahead. So the Wagner Group is a very shadowy military group. They're called mercenaries, but they're really not because they report to Putin in Russia. They just don't wear insignia like normal Russian soldiers do. They're, they've been fighting for some time in Syria, and, uh, and they're, they're, they're very tough. They're, they sort of think of themselves as special forces. I don't know if that's quite accurate. They are fighting in Ukraine. They were sent to kill uh, Volodymyr Zelensky early on in Kiev, but they didn't succeed. And from what we know, they're now operating in more than a dozen African countries. Wow. Um, and they use force to secure the outcomes they seek, and that includes the exploitation of diamonds, gold, and other natural resources. And last month, two senators, Roger Wicker, who's a Republican from Mississippi, Ben Cardin, a Maryland Democrat, they introduced a bill to designate Wagner as a terrorist group, citing, among other things, the trafficking and raping of women in the Central African Republic. Uh, so this might be something you'd want to do. And they, by the way, they're, they're in Mali, where the French have recently left. Now they are pretty much in charge in Mali. You'd think this would be something to discuss at a summit meeting like this. But again, it was avoided for happy talk and platitudes and virtue signaling and that sort of thing. And of course, discussing, uh, you know, the, 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 the urban plight here in America, <laughs> which is which so little to <laughs> well, do that, with what well, was going on. Listen, uh, yeah, President Biden also four paragraphs into his remarks during the dinner 
essentially apologize for slavery, calling it America's original <laughs> sin. I make now slavery was a terrible institution, of course. But something people should understand historically, there was slavery in Africa long before the first Europeans set foot there. And the people who came to buy slaves, they bought them from the chiefs of various African tribes who had taken slaves. That's actually how it actually worked. Um, uh, So uh, uh, it it was only really essentially a 19th century moral revolution that slavery was wrong. And that came about because of Quakers and evangelicals and, and others who came who decided, you know what, yeah. it's immoral. Cliff May, I got I to gotta put a pin in it there. Pleasure speaking with you. Founder and president of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Check them out at Clifford D. May. I'm Rich Valdez. Open Phone America is coming up. Give us a call. We'll be right back. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Let's get into season four, episode three, Facade. People get picked on. I got picked on. But Scabby Abby, Scabby at the whole school. Yeah, I hurt me. I felt like it wasn't real. If I may, I want to defend the storytellers. The people who created this show wanted you to feel like these people were the worst people ever. They pretty much said the whole school of Smallville High are bad people. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hi there, and good evening. I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Feel free to check it out, at Rich Valdez, and uh, drop a comment. We will uh, get to those during the break. If you want to give us a call, 866-505-4626. This is Open Phone America, where the third and final hour of the program, where we uh, allow you guys to sound off, let your voices be heard here on America's Late Night Town Hall, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you guys. Tonight, we uh, just a little bit of a recap. We talked a little bit about what was going on, this new deal that McCarthy has struck with the Club for Growth uh, negotiating on behalf of the um, House Republicans that don't want McCarthy and, and McCarthy himself. And they've come to uh, an arrangement where he's very close. I think he's going to be at 210 or 212 in tomorrow's vote. We'll see if that happens. And uh, should he um, get that number, will that sway the others? I don't know. But more concessions have been made in terms of what kind of money can be spent against sitting Republicans in a primary. And it sounds like, hey, look, we uh, obviously challenged you, Kevin McCarthy, and we don't want you to ever try to unseat us. (laughs) So we want to make sure you can't spend money from the Congressional Leadership Fund or from uh, these other uh, super PACs. To, uh, to beat us. So it looks like they're trying to, um, a little bit of CYA. And uh, my least favorite congresswoman from the Bronx and Queens, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, also known as AOC, or I like to say all out crazy. Uh, she says that we could have a potential coalition government, um, maybe even have Democrat chair people. Now, of course, this is a Democrat's dream, right? The Democrats really want this to happen. And it's uh, it's interesting to me because if you had a guess, right, if you had a guess and you'd say, hey, are you a Democrat? Sure, I'm a Democrat. 
Who would you like to to be speaker? Would you like to see McCarthy win or McCarthy lose? I think 99.9% of the Democrats, dare I say 100%, will say, I want Kevin McCarthy to lose. Right. Okay. So I think I'm right on that that part. Hopefully you're with me. You're tracking with me. However, some Republicans think they're doing something to save America in doing exactly what the Democrats want to be done. And this is the part where, uh, and I'm not saying I don't understand. I understand where they're coming from. I just... I just can't get on board with it. I can't, you know, uh, sit here and say, oh, you know, this um, this is great for democracy. This is an excellent process. We're doing a, a really uh, a service for for the uh, American electorate. I, I don't think that's the case. And, you know, earlier today I tweeted, <clears throat> the longer a handful of five to 20 Republicans work to achieve a McCarthy defeat, which all Democrats want, the closer Democrats get to their goal of choosing the next speaker. And now here you have AOC uh, making the same comment, essentially saying that we want to have a Democrat speaker. Now, not too long ago, uh, Representative Ro Khanna, he um, is a Democrat from California. He was on CNN uh, saying that he'd be thrilled if five or six Republicans would come across and have Hakeem Jeffries as speaker. And he's on tape saying it. Listen to this. Well, we are going forward. There wasn't a single defection in the vote for Hakeem Jeffries. Of course, a historic vote, the first African-American to lead a party in the House of Representatives. And we're very optimistic about our leadership. Here's the, the sense. If there are five, six Republicans who want to come across to vote Hakeem Speaker, we'd be thrilled. People have floated this idea, well, what about a moderate Republican? There have to be, in my view, at least two conditions that are met. First, they can't hold this country hostage with the debt ceiling or government shutdowns. And second, they can't have subpoena power to do frivolous investigations against the president. Unless they agree to those two terms, I don't think a single Democrat is going to vote for any Republican. So it's interesting that Congress has a constitutional mandate to provide oversight. And and here Rep. Khanna says, yeah, we could definitely have this type of coalition government with a moderate Republican speaker that we'll vote for, you know, as long as he ignores his constitutional and statutory responsibility to, to hold people accountable to have the investigations and do what's necessary. I mean, it's literally why Congress exists. So, uh, or at least a, a good function of what they do in their existence. <clears throat> All I could say is, uh, that was funny. So between AOC all out crazy saying um, we're going to have this coalition government, maybe we can have Democrat chairs. I mean, they're already picking out the furniture in the speaker's office. So you tell me, how is it that any of the Republicans that are uh, altruistic and look, I, I'm not trying to be facetious. I realize that many of them feel like they're doing something good for America. And they're saying, no, we're McCarthy's not good news. He's bad news. He's not helpful. He's he's going to hurt this country. He has been inactive on many important measures, and we're going to continue to see that inaction. He's weak, and he's not a fighter, and he's not going to go after Biden. And if we don't do it, this is our only shot. And I think, do I want McCarthy, who is a wild card based on that argument, who isn't going to do this and isn't going to do that, or... Do I want somebody that AOC and Rep. Ro Kahana want, uh, who I believe he was uh, uh, Bernie Sanders' most recent campaign chair? Um, 
Yeah, let me think about that. No, absolutely not. That's insanity. These, this is this is, this shouldn't even be a question we consider, right? Um, Kevin McCarthy delivered a Republican majority. He he raised the money, and I think to me this is pretty open and shut. But not so open and shut for a lot of people. Perhaps I understand it better. Perhaps I don't understand it at all. Either way, I'm interested in speaking with you guys on this topic. Plus, everything we talked about in the last hour, we talked with Cliff May about the issues with energy in Africa, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, where there's these blackouts and how, um, you know, there's this push for um, hydrocarbons to be eliminated and it, this impacts farmers. It was a really interesting conversation. Um, so I want to get to your calls and more. Let's go to Kentucky, WKCT, Bowling Green. Jim, what's up? Welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Good morning, Rich. How are you today? Buenos dias, sir. I'm doing well. Thank God. Very good. Great show last night. I want to back up a little bit. I tried to get in and get get to talk with the congressman you had from Texas. Sure. But it, he, his words just ring hollow, okay? I, I've been voting for 46 years, mm-hmm. and there's not a, I haven't seen a dime's bit of difference in that span of time in Congress or the Senate those people act like they hate each other, and they're more like professional wrestling. They go out and put on theater, and it's drama. But in the back rooms, they're buddy buddies and pals. They, I don't believe any of them have a burning desire to see much anything change. And I think he mentioned something about last night about term limits. And to me, the two most important things that if could if we could get it done would change the the scenery of of the legislative body up there would be term limits and get a handle on the lobbyists. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I I think you're right. I think that there is um, a huge culture in Washington, the swamp, whatever we want to call it, where people have just become um, used to the idea. It's kind of like, you know, it used to be, hey, I want to be an athlete or uh, a um, an actor. You know, that's how I'm going to make a lot of money. Now a lot of people, hey, I want to become a congressperson. You know, I get elected to Congress. I could become filthy rich. And while I do believe that that shouldn't be the case, I know that it is the case. So I'm not going to disagree with you there in any way. I think you're right. I think Troy Nels is a good guy and he's he's um, he's his heart's in the right place. And I think he's just trying to win. But I do agree with what you're saying that there's a lot of people and many things don't change. And you're right. Term limits would be a key place to start. The issue with term limits, uh, and it's not an issue um, that I have. It's an issue. It's a legal issue that we can't necessarily create um, a, a, a piece of legislation, as I understand this, to implement term limits. The actual United States Constitution has to be amended to say that these terms are now limited because in the Constitution, there's no say that they're limited. So uh, at least this is how I understand it. And, and, and I could be wrong. So I think this is it's a way bigger ask. Um, and one of the ways to get to it is through an Article five constitutional con- convention of the states and this convention of states project uh 
does um, solve that problem. And I think we're at like 35 states that have agreed to such a convention. But of course, we have 50 states. So this is a, a, a tall order and it's going to take some time to get to, but does not mean that we should stop trying by any means. So yes, we need term limits. Um, part B to that is, or in addition, the other side of the coin is that uh, until we have that, you're going to have these people that are career politicians that are going to stay in Washington and make as much money as they can until they uh, can get out and wait the year time and then become a lobbyist themselves. <laughs> and, you know, like John Boehner and go on to represent the marijuana lobby or whatever industry that they get into. And I, I, I'm not here to begrudge anybody making a living after they leave the government. Um, but I will say we should have the limits. I agree with what uh, Senator Rick Santorum did when he stepped away after two terms in the Senate. I do believe we should have term limits. I think that's uh, one way to make sure, hey, you're here to do a job. You get your job done in your time frame. If not, you're out. So you're right. You said you've been voting for 46 years. That's a long time. It's longer than I've been alive. And in those 46 years, uh, all I could say is the difference in, you know, in my short time voting is that we had Bush tax cuts. We had Trump tax cuts. I've seen a little bit of a difference in economy in Republican uh, uh, presidencies that I think was better for me financially. So I, I favor Republican policies. However, that doesn't mean that I have not seen massive and radical spending while Republicans were in power. Now, I'll be the first one to say we can't treat anybody here as a monolith. To compare um, even, you know, Kevin McCarthy, Matt Gates, any of the, 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 um, the, the Republicans right now in the House to say Mitch McConnell and his crew in the Senate, I think would be unfair because I think McConnell is, is just, you know, very, very bad for the Republican Party and he's got way too much power. And, and the way he wields it is even worse. So it's a bit of a complicated scenario, but that doesn't mean that we won't overcome. I think we get there. We just need to have a clear vision on what the task is, what the assignment is, who the enemy is. And in my opinion, the, the, the enemy here is, is America failing. And if stopping a Democrat agenda is how we get there, then we need to focus on stopping the Democrat agenda and not on stopping Kevin McCarthy. That's just my thought because I think otherwise we, we get lost, um, you know, and then we can't see the forest through the trees. But Jim in Bowling Green, I appreciate it. I do have to hit a break right here. But uh, anytime you can, give us a call back. Again, our phone number, 866-505-4626. We've got calls from, uh, let's see, Missouri and South Carolina and more coming in. So we're going to get to those straight ahead. I'm Rich Valdez. Don't go anywhere. So I think that is the central question. If not him, then who? Uh, you have certain members of the Freedom Caucus who have, of course, uh, nominated other people, but the rest of the Republican Party will not rally, I believe. They will not coalesce under Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan himself doesn't want it. They will not coalesce uh, under someone uh, like Andy Biggs. And so the question is, is there anyone in their caucus that can build that consensus? If there isn't, uh, McCarthy's team may have to come to the Democratic Party. And if that's the case, 
then what would that even look like? It's rather unprecedented. Could it result in a potential coalition government? Could we get Democratic chairs of committees uh, as a result? We don't know. Oh, my gosh, AOC. All out crazy. Uh, my least favorite congresswoman from the Bronx and Queens, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And I, I was talking about this in the last segment, and I wanted you to make sure you heard it, because this this is a reality. This is a reality. So this could potentially happen if we don't do things right. Now, look, uh, I don't think it's going to happen. I think that, you know, the, the squeaky wheel is going to get the oil and they're going to, you know, for lack of a better word, they're going to shut them up by appeasing them with their committees and this and that and allow McCarthy to move forward. And again, this is not a special plead for McCarthy. This is just, it makes all the sense in the world if he's got 202 votes and then 201 votes and then 202 votes. and Why on earth would we say you should step aside when you're trying to get to, like really, because Jim Jordan has that amount, because Andy Biggs had that amount, because anybody else had that amount, right? Uh, No, none of them had that amount. I think the most they got was, 10 votes or 20 collectively, but 10 votes for one person, it's clearly not a path to victory, right? And it's clearly an invitation to say, we're going to have to get, you know, the more conservative members that are Democrats to come on board that potentially vote for blah, blah. This is very bad, right? It's bad when you're cutting deals with the Democrats to get in. You're going to owe those deals. This is why we don't do that. And this is why we don't play games with whatever it is that we're doing right now and holding out. Newt Gingrich just said that they were blackmailing, you know, uh, his word, not mine. But it's it seems that way. And look, again, I love Bobert. We had her on the show. I love Matt Gates. I bumped into him at the CPACs and we took a picture. Really good guy. Some of his staff are friends of mine from uh, the young Republicans in New York City. Uh, I think these are great guys and they stand for the right things. But I think right now. We're playing a very dangerous game that has a high propensity for backfiring in our face. Anyway, our phone number is 866-505-4626. We've been talking about a lot of things tonight. China's influence in Hollywood, the energy issue in Africa, and so much more. The Facebook whistleblower, that was a fantastic uh, hour that we had at at the top of the program. Let us go to Missouri and check in with Sharon calling from KWTO. Sharon, welcome. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, Rich. I'm not going to touch the the political topic Uh, as far as I'm concerned right now, the way I feel about all of them making KMA. Um, (laughs) uh, I want to talk about the energy situation. Porsche Motors is developing a synthetic fuel. Hmm. It can be used in gasoline-powered engines with no modifications. They're going to be using it in their Formula One race cars. Car manufacturers all over the world are looking at this and watching it closely. If this fuel can be made economically, sustainably, and you have to kind of throw in a moral value there, too. I don't want to see kids being used as slaves right. to produce it. But if it can be done, this is going to turn the energy question upside down. But, Rich, I will 
bet you right here in national radio in front of all these millions of people, and I know it's illegal in a lot of places to bet, but I will bet you $100 of my Social Security money that the progressives and the green, quote-unquote, coalition will come up with some way to say that it is bad. Yeah, I, I think you're right. So AOC, all out crazy. If you're listening, Sharon in Crane, Missouri, wants to bet 100 bucks with you. You better make good. Now, you know, she's under investigation for this very fancy dress that she had. So I don't know if she's going to make good on that. But Sharon, I think you bring up a great point. I'm going to take a look at this e-fuel from Porsche. And uh, more on your call straight ahead. Sharon, thanks for the call. I am Rich Valdez. We're coming right back. Open Phone America. Give us a call. All right, America, welcome back. I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S. It's Open Phone America, Open Phones Across America. It's your chance to weigh in. Let your voice be heard here on America's Late Night Town Hall, The Jim Bohannon Show with me, Rich Valdez. Now, uh, 866-505-4626 is the phone number. And uh, we were just discussing uh, the speaker and the drama that's going on. I want to go to South Carolina, check in with Jerome. Hey, Jerome, you're on with Rich Valdez. Welcome. Hey, hey, Rich, Rich with an S Valdez. Yes, hey, sir. You know, when I see this, what's going on with the uh, Republicans trying to pick a new speaker? I, I think you're going to tell me. You know, I think it kind of reminds me of a, a song I used to listen to growing up called, If Loving You Is Wrong, I Don't Want to Be Right. <laughs> oh, it's such a beautiful thing. It's such, <laughs> it's such a beautiful thing, man. I was in the VA today and I said, I can't get enough of this. Hey, Hollywood couldn't script it this better. Come yeah, well, I think you're right. I think it's it's a tremendous show, which I'm going to call a bloodbath, and uh, it, it's not helpful, not helpful at all. I uh, I think there's a lot of people out there that are saying, "Oh, Rich, you're part of the establishment. You're this. You're a rhino. You're whatever." And I think they're all wrong, but. Uh, th- this doesn't really help. Now, again, I will stand corrected and I will issue an apology to to um, Congressman Gates and anybody else that, you know, took this as seriously as they did and held up this process. If they're able to get rid of McCarthy and uh, bring in a Jim Jordan or something like that or Byron Donalds, I will say, hey, kudos to you. I tip my hat to you. You were right. I was wrong. But I just still don't see it happening. I think ultimately they're going to just get what they want uh, in one way, shape, or form or another, um, and we're going to get McCarthy because he's got the clearest path to winning. So I don't know what's going to happen, um, but yes, that is definitely what Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert and others who who um, dislike uh, McCarthy's stance on several issues, they're saying the same thing. If loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. <laughs> All right, Jerome, thanks for the call. We appreciate it. Um, thanks for your service, by the way. You said you were at the VA. I appreciate the, your service to our country. Let us go to Joseph in New York City. What's going on? Hi, uh, I believe you uh, happy New Year to you. Thank you, sir. Um, 
the, the Supreme Court is going to hold a, um, a hearing on the 2020 election results fraud. It's being brought by American citizen Lloyd Brunson. Yeah, so and Brunson and his brother. Uh, yeah, I'm familiar with the case. Matter of fact, I'm going to talk about that uh, um, Friday. But the I'm going to make a bold prediction here that there they will not take the case. They will send it back to the federal court, and it's only in the federal court because of something called Rule 11, um, where this was a state case. And because they they implied that there was a national security implication in their filing of their papers, it kind of skipped a level and got to the federal court. And a federal appeals court judge was the one that decided this doesn't have any standing here or whatever and said, no, thank you. Uh, they said, well, we want to we want to appeal that on the basis of the you're being unconstitutional and there is this national security implication and filed the, the appropriate paperwork and both um, I forget the other Brunson, but there's two Brunson brothers who filed this this claim. And um, I'm willing to bet a significant wager if that's legal, if it's not legal. I'm just kidding. It's radio shtick. But uh, I would bet that uh, hypothetically that nothing will come of this uh, because it's um, the claim is a very, very big claim. And this is not something for the Supreme Court. Right? There's claims in there where they want to um, uh, they allege that something like 290 members of Congress should be tried for. I think the allegation is treason. Uh, there, there's a bunch of different um, claims in there that don't have any jurisdiction in the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court isn't going to make a decision on was the election uh, fraudulent or not fraudulent? Was the election um, something? Because it's not about the election. This is going to be about who actually can hear this type of case and does it have those national security implications? and the implications that they're alleging, um, I'm going to guess, based on the makeup of the court as it stands right now, uh, I don't think that they're going to take the case. They're just going to bounce it somewhere else. That's my thought. If I'm wrong, please call back and say, Rich, you know, I called you on Wednesday night, Thursday morning, and you couldn't have been more wrong. And I will happily say, just like my apology to Matt Gates, <laughs> I will happily eat crow and say, you were right and I was wrong, Joe. Oh yeah, you know. Also, AOC. Uh, yeah. AOC. I, I call her. I call her communist bartender Cortez. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you. You know, it's it's funny. Um, she she just um, she's like the gift that keeps on giving. She she says the craziest things. She has the craziest proposals. I'm going to give you a little factoid about her because she's always been a, a foil in in my radio career. I always go back to her and just you know kind of uh, beat her up a little bit because. Uh, quite frankly, she I'll give you a chance to guess here. How many pieces of legislation do you think that she has successfully sponsored uh, based on all of the things, Green New Deal, this, that and the other, all the things she talks about? How many of pieces of legislation has she sponsored that have been signed into law? How many? Net zero. 100% right. Ding, ding, ding. You win the prize. If I had something to give you, I'd give it to you. That's right. She's in her second term in the United States House of Representatives, and she has not gotten a single piece of legislation signed. At the time, at least uh, at the end of 2020, uh, which was the end of her first term, um, she was she was the only female in the entire Congress that did not have her and one other 
um, male member of Congress, so two people that had not gotten a single thing done in their $174,000 a year job of, you know, debating laws, passing laws, getting them signed into law. And I thought, man, you, you know, you would think that in that year, she was the number one fundraiser in all of Congress. She raised more money than any other member, yet she could not get a single bill signed. That says something. Joseph, I thank you for the call, and hopefully we'll talk again. Tune in on Friday because we're going to talk about that once the Supreme Court um, does what I think it's going to do, or maybe they'll surprise us and we'll have lots to talk about. Um, Let's see. Do we uh, have time? Here we do. We're going to go to uh, Steve. Steve in Cleveland, Ohio. Steve, welcome. W-E-O-L. Hey, Rich. Hola. First of all, I love hearing you at night because there is uh, someone actually real to listen to. Amen. And, let me uh, let me just plug that right away and echo that. Yes, very few of anybody anywhere is a real live person in this day part. And, and it's part of the thrill of why I love doing this is talking to guys like you, Steve. So thank you. Well, I'll tell you another thing. Uh, I'm just going to use the first two names of Clay and Buck. I know they're smart guys, but uh, I don't like their show. I'm in, I'm in the daytime. Well, I would uh, never trash anybody else's you know. show. But tell me what's on your mind on uh, on McCarthy and Trump and this whole battle for the speaker. I wish you'd have filled in for Rush. I'll leave it there. The whole thing <laughs> is is Thank I'm you. still trying to figure out Trump, and then you got MTG, and then it's like we got to get somebody passed. We got to get Kevin in there because we got all this stuff figured out now. The little games and rules or whatever stuff they negotiated, but we can't prosecute nobody. We can't do anything. And uh, so she's on uh, in our war room in the morning, just going off, which was good. And then you got Gates. But the thing is, is do you think the the rats? I mean, the Democrats. Do you think <laughs> they had a little bit of maybe? Hey, if they don't have quite the two thirty or forty, but they got a slim margin, you think it might be a nice way of they. Uh, hey, we got into their heads too. They uh, they still screwed this up, but they're they're professional cheaters. I mean, they are just total professional cheaters. And all people have to do is look at Wisconsin, Georgia, and Arizona. And back in time, there was 45,000 votes. And state legislators says, hey, nobody's supposed to be involved. We're going to switch the votes. <laughs> the courts, the governor, the DAs, and it's, that's another story. But we would have had a yeah. – um, Biden would have well, still been trying to get somewhere. But it, what, what I'm trying to say is, is what's going mm-hmm. on is, is whoever is supporting McCarthy – Newsmax had an article I saw tonight. He still has a shot at getting in. Oh, sure. And I can't believe after six times. I wouldn't believe it, but Byron or whatever, Jim Jordan doesn't want the job. Gates doesn't want the job. But apparently not too many people want the job. But if they get these rules put across, then that's going to be what McCarthy has to go by. But one rule in there is one person can come up with something and bump the speaker out, you know, like a motion or something, but just one person. That was yeah, one that motion one of the rules. I don't know. Yeah, but the whole thing in there is if he does get in, how bad can it be if anybody else? Got, I mean, because they they've already started out screwed up. I mean, you know, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna govern the country. We're gonna prosecute all these people from you know good old Hunter all the way to you know Fauci. Right. I mean, well, they, Steve, for the in the to respect the the clock, I, I just want to give you my response quickly on what you've said so far, and I appreciate the comment. Uh, here's the thing: I think. Um, a, 
I think you're right. It's it's not necessarily about getting Kevin McCarthy in there. It's just that it's like if we're playing football, this guy's our biggest guy. He's our fastest guy. He's We've got to put him in. He's the, the guy that can get 202 votes. Now, uh, I think if Jim Jordan were to say, all right, screw it. I, I'm not with Kevin McCarthy anymore. I'm, I'll do it. If, like Byron Donalds did, if if he were to do that, I think we would have a consensus and everybody would back Jim Jordan. However, uh, I think Jim Jordan realizes there's a huge fundraising component to this. There's a huge political component to this. Jim Jordan's known for being a very plain spoken, let's let's you know, let's do it kind of guy. The guy was a wrestler, and you know, McCarthy is more of the deal maker. And I think this is part of how he survives in a, a dangerous place like the swamp. So. While I would prefer someone like Jim Jordan, I realize that if the guy doesn't want the job, the guy doesn't want the job, right? So what do you do? You, you have to go with the path of least resistance. And in this case, it's Kevin McCarthy. It's clear to me. Uh, what will happen in the next couple of days, I don't know. But these these tweets and people you know, responding to me, and I interacted with several people today on Twitter. I normally follow the philosophy of, if you feed the trolls, they keep coming back. But today I, I said, you know what? Let me try and get to some people to see if they'll understand where I'm thinking. And many people don't. They don't agree with me. But my thinking is we're not doing ourselves any favors. And we're not going to come out of this stronger than we went in, right, by bloodying up McCarthy and, and showing these fissures that are really, you know, um, chasms in, in our party. So uh, that that's where I'm at on this. And I think... We have to, you know, when Trump is saying McCarthy, when Jim Jordan's saying McCarthy, when Jim Banks is saying McCarthy, when Marjorie Taylor Greene is saying, what is up with you guys that don't want to go with McCarthy? Um, I think that we are, you know, there's a consensus here. And it's a small minority that's, you know, trying to dictate the entire majority. And last I checked, that's not what America was built on whether they, they're doing it in the name of all things good and holy or not. And ultimately, that, that's where we are. So anyway, I appreciate it, Steve. I'm going to hit this break. We're going to come right back. We're going to check in with our friends in Alabama and Arizona and uh, everywhere else across this fruited plain. So don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. A couple of quick headlines here. A uh, court has ruled in favor of a teacher, a teacher who, a former teacher now, who wore a Make America Great Again hat to school, uh, was uh, gotten all sorts of trouble. And uh, now they've ruled that this was protected by the First Amendment. That's according to NBC News. So um, good. It's good to see the Constitution working. And the um, yesterday, quickly before we get back to the calls, I wanted to share with you, I saw a news report that had a rescue going on of, of a Tesla that went over a cliff. And you've probably seen this right now. Um, and you may have heard the story, but the LA Times is reporting that it was uh, the father who actually, it seems intentionally drove the Tesla off the cliff. And uh, they're saying he was a soft-spoken, friendly guy, Dharmesh Patel. He's been charged with attempted murder after driving the family with the fam the family car with the family in it off of the a side of a of a cliff 200 feet and thank god nobody's died so 
Fascinating, fascinating. By the way, um, Joe Biden's going to the border. We're going to talk about that. He's supposed to meet with President AMLO in Mexico. And he figured, hey, you know, since I'm there, I'm going to check out the border. He's going to check out the Mexican side of the border. I'm wondering if Joe Biden's going to try and sneak across the border himself and say, I wonder how easy this is. If you don't know if you're going to America or you're not, then you ain't black. Yeah, I would love to see some crazy stuff like that happen. I think that would be entertaining. So we're going to continue to monitor that. And uh, and just another piece of news here. The FBI has raised the price of the award or the reward for ratting out whoever it was that placed the pipe bomb on January 6th. So keep that in mind. Let us go now to Gary, Dothan, Alabama, 103.9 FM. Gary, welcome. Hi, Rich. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you. Happy New Year. What's on your mind? Same to you. I just wanted to throw my two cents in on this uh, McCarthy debacle. Obviously, our friends in the House the conservatives, the Republicans, they should have uh, hashed this all out between the election in November. And now the optics and perceptions make them look mm-hmm. like morons with this going on. So uh, that's very distasteful for everybody. Uh, yeah. As far as I've never been a big fan of McCarthy. I think he's a lot like Ryan's. But, you know, he's still a conservative and we need to go ahead and get him in there. I think Jim Jordan would do a better job. But he's focused on heading up the Judiciary Committee and uh, heading up all these investigations, which needs to be done. And I'm sure they'll uncover more dirt. However, uh, they don't seem to ever hold anybody responsible. It'd be nice if we could actually do that for a change. So, you know, we'll give them a chance, see what they do. I Uh, think you're right, Gary. I think you're right. I agree with you on, on every single point. You know, I've spoken to McCarthy. He is such an affable, nice guy, great to talk to. And he's terrific uh, in terms of, you know, his humanity, his personhood. Uh, Then there's times where I think, you know, was that the right thing to do? You know, would I have done the same way? Is he as conservative as I'd like him to be? Those are there's always questions. And uh, and I'm not saying, you know, he's some sort of crazy rhino. I don't believe that to be true either. Uh, I think he's a politician and he's a deal maker. And it's just uh, lamentable. The, the whole thing is lamentable. But I thank you for the call. They're telling me it's time for me to take another break. And we will do that. We'll continue with your calls. Uh, 866-505-4626. I'm Rich Valdez. We're coming right back. All right, America, welcome back. I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And uh, we are wrapping up our open phones across America time this evening. But I wanted to share a story with you. Uh, Interesting place. People magazine, ex-pharma executive who killed son with autism, then was sprung from prison, is found dead. Now, this story goes back to 2010. I'm going to get into the nuts and bolts of it tomorrow because it was just such an interesting headline, but I wanted to tease it because I think, man, that's a crazy story. And I really do like to react to these crazy stories, not so much for my reaction, but to kind of bring the story to you to get your reactions, especially during open phones. So uh, I want to put that one out there and I'll try to hit that a little bit earlier tomorrow. Let us go to Pat in Sedona, Arizona. Welcome, brother. Happy New Year. 
Hey, my friend. Thank you. Happy New Year to you, too. I want to get to my point is that uh, this debacle, this this stupidity in our government fighting over the Speaker of the House, the Republicans, you're right, are going to damage themselves because they're going to have to make deals with Democrats. And we have so much to fix, so much we have to do. They're not going to get anything fixed, but at least they may be in a good direction, get things started. I'll tell you, it's it's embarrassing. This is why I left the, the Republican Party in 2016, because I just felt that those people were uh, just totally unorganized. There are people like, you know, the turtle with uh, uh, <laughs> and Lizzie Graham and many others that are uh, they, they don't care what's going to happen to our country. They don't care what's going to happen to us, the American people. They just want their little piece and they're going to have their security. We're not going to have any security and the borders are going to be wide open. Our new governor, Katie Hobbs, has taken apart the the wall that was kind of fabricated with fences and uh, uh, storage uh, containers. They're going to yeah. take that apart. I have no idea, and she will not answer any questions, but they're yeah, doing that. You're so right, and that's, it's the border that we've got to worry about, and that's why we got to get past this whole speaker thing, Pat. Thank you for your call. Hasta la próxima. Take care, good night, and God bless. I am Rich Valdez. We'll do it again tomorrow. Hey, everybody, this is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day, plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.